Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. Every year, Heredity publishes some outstanding student-led papers, and to recognise the quality of this work, the journal runs a student paper prize. But given that they're all pretty good, it makes you wonder, what exactly does it take to really stand out? Well, sit back and find out, as we hear from the overall winner, now Dr. Ali Graham, and second runner-up, Johanna Denkana. First up, here's Ali, to talk about her study, Adaptive Integration of the Beta-Globin Cluster in Two Andean Waterfowl. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you may remember Ali from an episode way back in 2019, when she first introduced us to the system. Of course, a lot has changed since then. Thank you for joining me. First of all, can you please just introduce yourself? So I am Dr. Ali Graham. I'm a postdoctoral fellow, uh, technically a National Institute of Health K99 postdoctoral fellow, that's the long term of it, at the University of Utah Eccles Institute for Human Genetics. Perfect. Well, thank you for joining me and congratulations on winning the best student paper of 2021. So just to start off, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what your paper is on. Okay, so this paper was part of my dissertation work. I looked at the genomic mechanisms associated with high altitude adaptation in a variety of duck species that live in the Andean mountains. So one of my chapters involved sequencing the hemoglobin complexes. So obviously hemoglobin is one of the best known and studied proteins and the whole world, basically. And we know that its role in binding to oxygen and in the blood, so on. But um, previous work led by my PhD advisor, Dr. Kevin McCracken, um, had shown there was a large degree of convergence across multiple species of waterfowl and even like hummingbirds and various other birds that live at altitude. So there was a large degree of convergence there on specific regions of the adult alpha and beta globin protein complexes. Uh, meaning that the high altitude versions of these species had very similar non-synonymous amino acid changes in pretty much the same locations. And there was additional work that was done by the McCracken Group and JSTORS Lab at Nebraska, um, which showed that changes actually affected oxygen binding affinity, which effectively left shifted the binding curve, which means that it was able to grab oxygen faster. So all of that previous work basically focused on the adult versions. However, there are other members of the globin gene family. And birds also have a not necessarily fetal version, but they have an embryonic version as well, both in alpha and beta. So my portion of that in my dissertation was to sequence the entire complex, this contiguous region, this really large, like 17K and 25K. And in assembling these uh, sections and looking at everything, I noticed that there were identical amino acid changes at the exact same spots in both these two high altitude species compared to the low altitude ones, which is very unusual. Um, and so a lot of this paper involved doing all sorts of different analyses, combining it with the hypoxia-induced bill factor pathway paper um, previously, which showed kind of different level of convergence, not nearly as identical, seeing whether or not that was connected. And then ultimately kind of discovering that there were these variants in the embryonic beta globin complex that mirrored also the like exact same changes that we saw in the adult ones for these two species. And the story that kind of came out of that was that we had this one species is called the speckled teal, 
we know that they had invaded these high altitude locations much earlier. So we have a low altitude population, which is still at low altitude. They invaded the Andean mountains. They're up there adapting. And then we have this other species, the yellow-bill pintail that we know through other data has invaded the high altitude location independently, but also much you know later. And so they also are under the same kind of pressure. And if you look up photos of these ducks, they look very similar to each other. They're just kind of these ducky looking ducks. But we know that ducks in general have this kind of propensity to hybridize across all sorts of, you know, locations and genera and so on. So the, it became this idea that yellow-billed pintail high altitude population acquired the identical variants because they effectively borrowed them through interbreeding from the speckled teal high-altitude population. They didn't have to do the work. This is called adaptive introgression. And we know it's adaptive based on the fact that, you know, in the adult versions of these, that it does left shift them. So it's adaptive in that regard. It's a really interesting system. And that's a really fantastic overview of why it's so interesting. But I wonder, what was it you were finding in this paper specifically? So what are the sort of key take-homes in this study? Sure. So the key like take-home is that the variants specifically in the embryonic beta globin cluster and the adult beta globin cluster are identical to one another in two different high-altitude species, and that they acquired these not through chance, you know, through convergent evolution, just only allowing certain things to happen, but because one a population of one species acquired it from another. So that's this adaptive integration terminology. So that we showed significant evidence for adaptive integration being the main driver for how these variants were kind of connected to one another between these two high altitude population species. So that was the, the main set of it. Great. I mean, it is a really fantastic study and it has a lot of really interesting stuff in it. And one of the interesting things about winning the best student paper is that you get to present this work at the Population Genetics Group meeting, which is a very important conference for heredity. And I wonder what that experience was like for you, because I'm assuming you probably haven't attended before. No, you know, I hadn't. And it was interesting in the sense that you know, obviously it wasn't happening in person, which was kind of a bummer, but completely understandable. And so we were all virtual, which allows a lot more people to to kind of come and go as they please. And, you know, given everybody's family situations, they can join. So I'm kind of on board for that. But I'm also, because I couldn't attend in person, it wasn't happening in person. You know, I'm in a different time zone than <laughs> it was happening in Norwich. It was happening in a completely normal time, completely like fine time at 10 a.m. Norwich time. But you know, it was 3 a.m. my time. <laughs> so, so that was a little bit of a challenge. And I had to weigh whether or not I went to sleep and got up or if I had to stay up. Um, so I managed to power through. I made a lot of tea and drink it. And I stayed up nice. to give to give my talk ahead of one of the other big talks. And so I felt a lot of pressure. But it was like a 10-minute, very condensed bite of what had happened with it. And I, there was a lot of people that joined, which was really nice to see. And, mm-hmm. you know, even though I wasn't technically able to engage in the same way, like as I would in a normal conference or even one that would happen during my time zone, it seemed like there was so much chatter online too. People were very engaged on Twitter and other places. So, you know, it was fun to see what was happening with those people and clicking on that and kind of just engaging in that route and then seeing them tweeting out their papers or other things and kind of looking to see what, you know, read more about it there. So even though I was a little, you know, I wasn't engaged as I potentially could have been at the conference, it was clear that everyone had like a great love for it. And it was very warm and welcoming. And, you know, whenever, hopefully we get to a point where 
we can have things kind of more safely in person. I'm totally jazzed at the thought of being able to go and, and, and doing that, which had never really been on my radar specifically, you know, so hopefully in the future. Yeah, we hear that a lot of people love that conference. Yeah. Uh, I know your talk was well received by a lot of people that I've spoken to, um, and I'm sure they'd love to actually meet you in person <laughs> whenever that's possible. <laughs> and I guess the, the next thing I wanted to ask is actually a bit of a shameless plug for Heredity, because you have published with us more than once. Yes. You've been on the podcast previously as well. I know, I'm a repeat offender. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, and I kind of wonder why it is that you choose to publish in Heredity, but also what the experience of publishing in Heredity is like. Is it, is it a nice experience? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love society journals and I feel like if we're going to have to pay money or kind of work within the landscape of how publishing is these days that I, if I was going to you know, pay money for it, I'd rather it go into a society and support whatever the society is doing, both in terms of like money for grants and aid for students or postdocs or conferences. So I have a great love for society journals, and I've really tried to publish in those. And I don't actually remember how it came up, you know, for my the first time that I published in it, I think it might have been Kevin, my PhD advisor that suggested it. And I was like, yeah, I haven't tried with them before. Let's, you know, let's see what the experience is like. And it was, you know, it's as smooth as as any, <laughs> I guess, you know, publication can go. But the feedback was totally reasonable. You know, it was clear that the reviewers like cared, you know, about that and like had really great comments. And the editor was like very receptive and like helped with us because this was, you know, during a period of time when I was just transitioning into my postdoc and I was still trying to like get everything organized, you know, for my PhD postdoc and <laughs> switching sure. stuff. And so it was a little chaotic, but it wasn't a difficult experience. And so when this other chapter that I had for my dissertation, when it was put into its final forms, both Kevin and I were like, yeah, let's go with Heredity again. Like we really enjoyed the experience. So that's just what we did. And we had the exact same kind of like very easy, thoughtful, smooth. I don't know. It just, it was good. We've really enjoyed it. And it's definitely, it'll continue to be like on my radar as a venue for potential stuff. And it's, you know, the paper that was published previously has been cited very well. So it's been a lot of fun. And then also this additional kind of like being able to do this outreach element where these podcasts and then with the previous paper, I was asked before I won the award or anything was asked to write like a little blog on the nature ecology and evolution site. So I there's a little there's a little I'm um, kind of right up there. That's more of a story driven element of my discovery. And there's gifts and stuff. So the engagement beyond just the paper of it all is also like a positive. Um, it's like a cherry, a little cherry on top. <laughs> it's nice to hear. I mean, it being a society journal, the editors are really keen to try and make it as constructive and nice an experience as possible. And hearing that that's coming across is a really lovely thing to hear. Yeah, definitely. And I guess the last thing that I had to ask you is that obviously you can write a really good paper because the editors of Heredity thought it was the best student paper last year. <laughs> And I wonder what you think some really good tips are for writing a good paper. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I think about actually a lot. I'm very intentional with my writing and everyone operates completely differently. It's such an individual endeavor, right? Some people, it just flows freely. For others, they have to kind of prepare themselves way ahead of time so that they give themselves room to let that come out because they don't work very well in a very short kind of like high pressure situation. So, you know, I'm more of a ladder, frankly, but, you know, as I've matured too, it, it hasn't been as, as dramatic, but I've gotten into the habit of 
even when I'm just starting to think about it or like when data is for me, it's sequencing. So I've sent stuff off for sequencing and I'm waiting for it to come back or whatever. I create just this document that I dump stuff into both in terms of like, you know, where I was kind of going with it initially. And that can change just to have a repository information, the same with the methods. If, you know, small details, I probably won't remember in like a year when I am putting these together, you know, and also I think that helps with the kind of initial deer in the headlights when you have just a blank document that you have to start writing in. For me personally, it's allowed me to be like, I feel more comfortable just unloading and writing because it's not a blank document. I have stuff that I'm working with that I can shift around, that I can edit. I'm more of a write everything and then edit rather than having something be perfect. I'm sure there's all sorts of, you know, people have their own tips and tricks and such, but that's for me has been the best one. It's gotten me to be more productive, seemingly more productive, because um, people have commented on that, that, oh, you have all these papers and they're coming out or whatever. And it's like, I've started them well ahead of time so that I'm not having to try and rush anything. They're kind of just in various stages and I'm more comfortable engaging with with the text of it. And it also helps me remember why I started it in the first place. And it can change, you know, over time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's great advice. But um, yeah, thank you very much for joining me and sharing your research and congratulations again on winning the best paper. Just to finish up, I wonder if you could remind us what your paper is called and also just tell us about anyone else who is involved in producing it. Sure. So the title of the paper is Adaptive Integration of the Beta Globin Cluster in Two Andean Waterfowl. My co-authors were Jeff Peters, Robert Wilson, Violetta Munoz-Fuentes, Andy Green, Daniel Dorfsman, Thomas Valky, Kevin Winkler, and then my PhD advisor, Kevin McCracken. And I also encourage the readers to check out my other heredity paper. <laughs> <laughs> oh, make sure to link it in the description as well. But yeah, perfect. Thank you very much for joining us. Yes, thanks. Thanks to Ali. You can find both of her papers on the Heredity website. We'll link them in the description. Up next, we have Johanna Denkener to tell us about their excellent paper, Regional Level Epimutation Rates in Arabidopsis Thaliana. Well, congratulations on your wonderful paper. Thank you. Can you please just introduce yourself to everyone listening? Yeah, uh, so I'm Johanna Denkener. I'm a PhD student in the lab of Maria Kolomitace, which is a lab of computational epigenomics at the Helmholtz uh, Center in Munich. And um, yeah, I've been doing my PhD thesis on computational population epigenomics, so more looking at differences inside of a population rather than between populations. Perfect. And clearly your paper was very highly regarded by the editors at Heredity. So can you just tell us a bit about what it was on? Uh, yes, of course. So it was about DNA methylation and how quickly DNA methylation accumulates changes spontaneously. And the spontaneous changes we would call epimutations. So for single cytosines in Arabidopsis, we already know how quickly they accumulate changes. But we were actually wondering, because generally a single cytosine changing doesn't make that much difference functionally. Um, so the question we were asking was, how quickly did entire regions change you know, their methylation status? So for that, obviously, we first had to consider what would we actually consider a region? Um, is it you know, 100 base pair bins or 200 base pair bins? So since we were working with MA lines in Arabidopsis, which you know you have between nine and 
30 samples that you can use. You have four MA lines and we wanted the regions to be the same for every sample. Uh, we wanted to pre-establish the regions on the basis of uh, genetic information. So what we did was use the knowledge that we had that the methylation levels of single cytosines correlate more with each other when they're close together than when they are further apart. So what we did here, instead of simply you know, using 100 base pair bins, we said we will cluster together the cytosines that are closest together first, and then iteratively kind of extend the clusters to the cytosines that's the next furthest apart, and then the next furthest apart until we reach a maximum region size of 185 base pairs, which is roughly the size of a nucleosome, where we knew that then after that size, usually the correlation between methylation levels at single cytosines dropped off quite significantly. Then as soon as you have those regions, then you can you know, sum up all of your methylation information per region, per sample, and then use that to calculate the differences between each two uh, samples, um, set that in relation to how many generations have passed between each two samples, and um, yeah, use that to calculate your FU mutation rates. And the FU mutation rates are actually calculated separately. So you calculate the rate at which cytosines gain methylation as well as the, the rate at which cytosines lose methylation, or in this case, cytosine regions. Mm. Fantastic. I mean, it, it sounds really interesting. And I wonder what some of your key findings were in this paper and what you think this or broad take-home messages were. Yes. So the epimutation rates that we had calculated for regions were about half as fast as for single cytosines, which generally you would say, well, you know, it's a lot lower. So I think the rates were in the magnitude of 10 to the minus 4. So if you compare that to the rate at which mutations arise, which is around 7 times 10 to the minus 9, it's five magnitudes faster than that. So from that, we would consider that probably heavy mutations um, that affect whole regions, not just single cytosines, are not um, driven by genetic changes and might lead you know, to adaption that's much faster than just by mutations. We also looked at heavy mutations that were specific to certain annotations. We saw that for example, gene bodies accumulate methylation changes much faster than, for example, transposable elements, which makes a lot of sense because transposable elements are generally super well maintained, like highly methylated, so they don't start you know, jumping around in your genome. And another thing that we found really, really interesting, and this like came up while we were writing the paper, actually, I was like going through different papers and saw that I think Weng et al. had just published annotation-specific um, mutation rates for genes and for transposable elements, and they showed the complete opposite of what we had found. So while we found very high um, FU mutation rates for genes, the genetic mutation rates were lowest in genes, but highest in transposable elements. So yeah, that was really cute. <laughs> so that was very interesting for us. And uh, I guess really gives you like an, a cool insight into the maintenance pathways um, going on. Fantastic. So what is it that you are hoping the main message someone's going to get when they read this paper is? So the most important thing that we were looking at was, you know, whether the epimutation rates for regions compare to those of single cytosines, which while they are slower, they are absolutely in the same magnitude so I think in terms of you know understanding evolution, this is really important. Mm. 
Perfect. And I guess the last question that I have is a little bit different because obviously the editors at Heredity thought that you had one of the three best student papers. And I wonder what you think makes a good paper. So what kind of tips did you either receive or would you give about how to write a really good paper? I guess the uh, most common advice would be to read a lot. You know, so I think it just makes it a lot easier to make your research into a good story and to set it into context. But what really helped me was to present the, the project a lot and in front of different sets of people. So like not just in our institute. So my institute, like the Institute of Computational Biology, it's just computational people. So I get a lot different input uh, when I present it to them than when I present it to people who actually work in the lab or people who don't work in plants. So yeah, that really helps and really helps to make the figures better, to you know sharpen your message and uh, yeah, giving it to read, you know, giving your first draft to someone else to read. Also, I found helps a lot because then they can tear it apart and you can start new. <laughs> tear it apart so you can make it better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you very much for joining me and sharing this research. Thanks for having me. Uh, hopefully we see some more of your papers in Heredity. I hope so too. You can find Johanna's paper on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash HDY. While you're there, you can also check out how to submit your own papers to the journal. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening.